ask that God would really speak powerfully into our lives. I believe that God wants us to walk in wisdom. How many think that's true? It says be wise. Don't be unwise, but be wise. And so we're going to learn tonight a little bit about how to get to know God in a better way. Is anybody up for that? I think I am too. I'm I'm excited about getting to know God better, and I've been walking with him for over four decades, so this is exciting to me. So Father, I just thank you tonight that you are the most loving, caring, gracious person I've ever met. And Father, I know that you care for each one of us. There's not one person in this room and those that are hearing my voice that you do not have a deep concern for. You're not here to condemn us. You're here to save us. You're here to encourage us. You're here to direct us. You're here to give us understanding and insight. You're here to rescue us, Lord, from those places that would bring such damage in our lives. And I pray, Father, tonight that you would do a mighty work within us. Give us a heart to hear, not just the words of a pastor, but help us to hear the words of the living God. And may your spirit speak deep into our innermost being. And Father, may we be challenged to hear the voice of wisdom. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Proverbs. I've been doing a series there. And we're in chapter 9. And this past week, uh, I've been reading through a book. One of our missionaries gave me a book called uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Really an amazing story. Uh, A young man by the name of Nabil Qureshi and his experience You know, how many recognize when you're coming from a totally different worldview and a totally different mindset, just the challenges sometimes to come to a place of discovering who Jesus Christ really is. And he shares very candidly, you know, over the course of a number of years, how he came to faith in Jesus. And I love what he said. He, as a devout Muslim, uh, writes in his book, he said, the cost for a Muslim to accept the gospel can be tremendous. And the gospel is actually the good news about Jesus. Of course, following Jesus meant that I would immediately be ostracized from my community. And for all devout Muslims, it means sacrificing friendships and social connections that from birth they developed through childhood. And he was a nice, uh, went through adolescence and he was a young man when he made this choice to follow Christ. He said, I never said I choose to remain a Muslim because it would cost my family if I were to follow Jesus. He said, far from it, I subconsciously found ways and means to go on rejecting the gospel so I would not be faced with what I would have to pay. My decision, which would bring shame to my family, an incredible dishonor. Now, most of us, we don't even connect with that worldview because we're not in a shame-honor culture. You know, you, you and I are focused totally differently, and I'll talk about a little bit of a different worldview that we're dealing with, but I'm just giving us an illustration tonight of how challenging it is for some people coming out of a totally different worldview to find faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, even if I were right about Jesus, could I do such a terrible thing to my family after everything they had done for me? The greatest concern for me were I to accept Jesus as Lord was, hey, I might be wrong. What if Jesus is not God? I'd be worshiping a human being then, and that would incur the wrath of Allah. And more than anything else, it would secure my abode in hell. As a matter of fact, one of the most fundamental doctrines in Islam is the fact that if you begin to worship Jesus, they see him as a prophet but not as God, then you're at the highest level of blasphemy. 
And so you can imagine trying to process that in your mind, to overcome that, and that's what he was battling with. He said, these are the costs Muslims must calculate when considering the gospel. Losing the relationships they've built in this life, potentially losing their very life, and I know some who have lost their lives, and then, if they're wrong, losing their afterlife in paradise. It's no understatement, he said, to say that Muslims often risk everything to embrace the cross. But then again, he said, it is the cross. And that's the reason why Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple or my follower must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So as I'm reading through this book, I, I recognize that the real battle, and as you read through it, it's very, it's, there's a, you know, at first it starts slowly, but there's a great tension as you're going through it because you can see the struggle this young man is having in order to follow Jesus when in reality he grew up believing so strongly in Islam and Allah and the prophet Muhammad. And so for him to go beyond all of that and eventually found Jesus, it's such a powerful story. But it's really a story of, his, of, of, of contending for his heart. And that's what I want to focus in on tonight. You know, for most of us, our battle is not that kind of a worldview. Our prevailing worldview here in North America can be described as secular humanism. And most of us don't even consider it because we're so uh, inundated with it and we're so pounded by it every single day. The movies, the media, we're just getting it day by day, moment by moment. We're just, in, you know, we're indoctrinated. We don't even realize it. We're being indoctrinated into a worldview that really is elevating humanity above God. As a matter of fact, many people deny that God even exists. Isn't that true? We're living in this culture. We see that. And for many, there's a denial of God as creator. There's a denial of God as a redeemer that's able to save us and, and actually has a claim on our lives. Most of us, we're, we don't even think that way. We see ourselves as having the right to define and determine our own lives. We don't feel an obligation necessarily towards God. And that's the prevailing worldview of this culture we're living in. And yet God who is the creator of each one of us, has designed an amazing plan and purpose for each of our lives. And often we forfeit that because we're losing a battle that's contending for our heart. So here's why in the early chapters of Proverbs, a case is being presented of two voices calling us to two entirely different pathways of life. And I think one of the, the great deceptions in our culture today is that there's all of these options. How many sense that, you know, life has become more complex. People will tell you that, you know, don't be so superficial, don't be so simplistic. There's all of these different ways of looking at things. But can I just point out to us, when we read the scripture, and that's why I'm preaching from the book of Proverbs, that there's really only two pathways. And Jesus, who is a wisdom teacher, brings it out to us in, in the Matthew's gospel. He says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many people People are on the broad way, but he says narrow is the way that actually leads us into the very presence of Almighty God. And Jesus talks about the narrow door, and he talks about himself being that way and being that door. So what we need to understand is there's a battle right now contending for our hearts, in which, as I say, you know, and I have in the last number of weeks when I'm speaking about the heart, you know, usually you and I think of the heart as the emotional center of our lives, but the Hebrews saw the heart as the essence of our personality and being. It spokes of, speaks of our mind, 
It speaks of our decision-making processes. It speaks of our emotions. And it speaks of our volition or our will. And so God is interested in capturing the entirety of our lives, that he, he actually we give our hearts to him, the essence of who we are. We give our being to him. So now we're coming here at the conclusion of a very interesting break in the book of Proverbs. See, the first nine chapters are narrative. And then you move into chapter 10. If you study the book, there's 31 chapters. Chapter 10, you get these little pithy statements, you know, these little proverbs. And what chapters one to nine is, is to give us an argument why we should listen to these proverbs and develop them as principles or guidelines to how you and I should live. And so chapters one to nine are actually this contention between these two ways. And we have an introduction of two women in the first nine chapters. And in those first nine chapters, we have a woman who we will describe as Lady Wisdom. And it's interesting that wisdom is seen as a, as a woman. And the reason being, and I've shared this before, is that in the Hebrew language, the word wisdom is in the feminine gender. And so wisdom is seen as a woman. So I'm gonna call her Lady Wisdom. And then there's another woman introduced, but she is a beguiling and deceptive woman, and we're gonna call her Woman Folly, see, because she's no lady whatsoever. So we're not gonna call her Lady uh, Wisdom. She's, I'm gonna call her Woman Wisdom. So I wanna take a look here tonight um, that there's an invitation in chapter nine, and it's an invitation to come and dine. And it's interesting in the scriptures when we uh, have this idea of eating, it's an idea of having an intimate experience. You know, the whole idea of eating uh, is scripture, is the idea of experiencing. And so it moves us past uh, a mental ascent. Because I think one of my great concerns is I'm watching how so many people make a mental ascent to belief in God. So many people say a mental ascent to say that I'm a Christian, and yet it's a mental ascent to things, and God wants us to go beyond just assenting mentally to something to literally living and experiencing the life that God wants us to experience, that we're experiencing the truth. We're experiencing the reality of what the Bible is talking about. We're experiencing the peace that God promises to us. We're experiencing the joy he wants to give to us. We're experiencing that hope that sustains us in life's difficult moments. So this whole idea is going to be presented of being invited to a meal. And we're going to notice there's two meals being offered to us. Lady Wisdom is going to offer us this amazing banquet, while Woman Folly is going to offer us stolen food, which is really uh, quite a contrast even in the meals that they're going to offer to us tonight. So let's take a look at these three appeals that are in, in, in reaching or contending for our hearts tonight. And the first one is simply the invitation by Lady Wisdom. And I want you to notice, we're gonna start reading here in Proverbs chapter nine. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew, open that up. And I'm not gonna PowerPoint uh, chapter nine. I want you to look at that for yourself. I'll, I'll supply all the other scriptures. But uh, in here, we notice something about wisdom. First of all, she's in the highest point of the community. She's seen by all, and it's a powerful expression. We notice how she is uh, described and how she is located. Let's pick it up in verse one. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, some translations say maidens, and she calls from the highest point of the city. So, 
earlier, and if we're reading the last chapter of Proverbs 8, and we're not going to take the time tonight to do that, but we see something of her grandeur. We see something that she was with God in the beginning. She was with God in creation. She was uh, a witness to God's creation of humanity. There's a lot of credentialing going on, who she is here. And just as we look at the significant building that she creates... Her building has seven pillars. Now, how many have ever looked at these ancient buildings? When you see a building with seven pillars, you're already getting the impression this is a magnificent building. This is a building of grandeur. This is not just a little humble abode. This is like a significant building. We would even probably think of it as a temple, and I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, as a matter of fact, when you're reading, it says she has seven pillars. Now, I know scholars you know, will have all kinds of interesting ideas about what seven represents. Some of them think it represents the seven days of creation. But we can say this about it, that seven in the Bible usually speaks of the number of completion. And I like what Paul Coptic writes. He says, uh, oh, I don't have this particular uh, statement here. It says, if wisdom has built her house, it is finished, it is good, and nothing else is needed. In other words, she's done a terrific job. She's, it's a complete work. And uh, Richard Clifford says, Wisdom's house, one can assume, symbolizes her great authority and dignity, which was so strongly stated in chapter 8, especially the latter part, verses 22 to 31. And those who come to her banquet acknowledge her authority and rejoice in her company. Now, it's fascinating in the Bible that you always have you know, these banquets. And there's kind of like a banquet motif in the Bible. You remember the story of Moses when he's receiving the law. It says Moses and Aaron and the priests and the elders went up and they ate with God. They had a meal. And so the old covenant was established via a meal. And then we move to the new covenant where Jesus is now at the Last Supper. He's sitting down. He's eating with his disciples. Remember that? It's the communion table. It's the Passover feast. It's a Jewish feast. And Jesus is now explaining to his disciples the significance of the Passover. Now, if you know anything about the Passover, what you need to know about it is that the Jewish people celebrate it on an annual basis because it's a reminder of their deliverance from the nation of Egypt. How many know that's what's going on there? And so they're remi reminding themselves of God's great salvation, his deliverance from slavery. But you know, Jesus is actually telling us that he is the fulfillment of the Passover, he is our Passover, and he is delivering us from something far more significant than just deliverance from physical captivity by a nation. We're actually being delivered from our sins, a far more uh, a difficult thing to be set free from. And so Jesus is actually explaining that to the disciples. So that New Testament, you know, is a covenant meal. And that's why we have communion. We remind ourselves of what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sins. He rose again. He conquered death. Those are all reminders in those fellowship meals. I want you to notice that we're actually going to go to the ultimate meal. If you read the book of Revelation, there's another meal coming. Do you know what it's, what it's called? The marriage supper of the lamb. And what that's all about, and let me give you a little background. The Jewish wedding was actually, there was a betrothal, an engagement. But their engagements, unlike ours, ours is like, well, we can decide or not decide. No, that was very binding. 
in the first century and that was like you were married. And what the bridegroom-to-be would do was go to his father's house and add a room to the house so he could come back and get his bride and then take her to the father's house. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And Jesus talks about that in John 14. He said, I'm going to prepare a room for you. He's talking to his disciples just before his death. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm the bridegroom. I'm going to prepare a place. The church is the bride. And so you and I are looking forward with anticipation as the people of God that one day we will be united with God forever and we will be sitting around a banqueting table. You see, it all speaks of, uh, of this beautiful covenant relationship and the fulfillment of that relationship with Almighty God. But then we notice here that the meal that Lady Wisdom is offering, it describes it as meat and mixed wine. And Dr. Longman uh, points out, it indicates that this feast will be a sumptuous banquet because in antiquity, or in the ancient days, meat was a luxury. So we know that this is not just any ordinary meal. And so what, what we're learning is that when you and I eat at Lady Wisdom's table, it's an extraordinary meal that we're always gonna be receiving these wonderful benefits in our lives. But then we have, in contrast, in chapter nine and verse 17, is woman folly. Listen to what it says about her meal. It says, stolen water is sweet, food or bread eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, and her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Now, how many get a little difference, you know, meat and mixed wines versus stolen bread and water. How many get a difference? A little different meal going on here. And I think that's what they're trying to get across to us. We're, we're, you know, the writer's trying to portray to us, listen, this is, you know, there's a big difference between walking in wisdom and walking in folly. It's a lot, there's a lot of a, a different scenario. And then it's interesting, as I've already pointed out, that Lady Wisdom's house is on the highest point of the city. Now, in the ancient world, the highest points usually had temples on them. And if we look in the Bible, where was the temple of God built? It was built on Mount Zion. And that's why when you're reading in your Bible, it talks about Zion. Somebody said the other day, Pastor, what's Zion all about? I said, it represents where the temple is built, which is a representation of where God dwells. And so God dwells on the highest point. And so it's pointing us to God. That's what this message is all about. Lady Wisdom's house is where God dwells. That's what we're learning from this uh, proverb right here. It's explaining that to us. So we notice who Lady Wisdom is inviting to uh, dine uh, with her. Now, I just want to point out here, in the ancient world, all the temples, including those of even the pagan gods, were in the high places in the community. Now we notice Lady Wisdom is in who she's inviting to dine with her. Look at verse four. It says, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Leave your simple ways. Now, we need to understand something. The simple person is the person who doesn't know God. And so what we're having here is a contention for the souls of people. Or the simple person is the person who's not embracing the way of wisdom. Because she's gonna tell us later, leave your ways. Leave those simple ways behind. And then she says here, to those who have no sense. You know, David Hubbard is a scholar, Hebrew scholar, and he says this, the simple or naive person is the one who literally lacks understand. And the word in the Hebrew language is they lack heart. You see, when you don't know God in a powerful way, you know, what happens is we're not strong in heart. And isn't it fascinating when you're reading the Bible? How often does God say this to us? Take heart. Be strong and of good courage. 
Over and over again, he's challenging us in our heart condition. As a matter of fact, I look around our culture today and I see a lot of indifference. Don't you? There's a lot of indifference because people don't have heart. And when you have heart, it means you engage in things and you become strong and you stand for things. But a lot of people have no courage. And the Bible keeps encouraging us to be strong in heart. Now, she goes on to say, come and eat my food. Drink the wine I have mixed. Her invitation then is to those who lack wisdom. Paul Coptic says, but to come to her means that we have to leave those simple ways behind and walk in a new way, the way of understanding. As a matter of fact, the invitation makes clear that not to decide is to decide. In other words, if you don't choose wisdom, you're actually rejecting wisdom. How many see that kind of makes sense? If I don't take it, I'm actually in a sense not taking it. I'm making a decision. I'm rejecting it. And, uh, and it says one has to give up something. You either give up your simple ways or you have to give up life. Because you see, wisdom and life go together, and, and folly, which in the, as we're going to understand here, woman folly, is actually not so much that people are not intelligent. It just means that they're, they're morally deprived. They, they don't quite grasp you know, the, the requirements that God is bringing into our lives. So the challenge that Lady Wisdom is presenting, verse 6, Leave your simple ways. Now, this is the second time she said this. Leave your simple ways and you will live. And then she says, walk in the way of insight. So the moment you and I say, okay, I'm gonna choose lady wisdom, and we're gonna find out what that really means, you're gonna walk in a way that brings life and insight to us. Now, we have to be willing to give up something. What are we gonna give up? Bruce Walkey describes the simple as the gullible. The invitation is to leave something in order to gain something. It's the idea of repentance. And the word repentance means we have to change our mind. We have to turn our back away from something. Now, isn't it fascinating when Jesus bursts on the scene in his earthly life and ministry, look at what he says. John, uh, Mark says this about Jesus. It says, and John was put in prison and Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Now why could he say that? Because he was the king and the king was now on earth. And then he said, repent and believe the good news. In other words, turn from your ways. Turn from the ways that are in rebellion against God. And the Old Testament prophets continually said, turn from your evil ways and turn to God. And Jesus is preaching a message of repentance. The prophets preached the message of repentance and all of the apostles, when they were preaching, if you read it, Paul was preaching repentance, Peter's preaching repentance. Uh, and we need to understand that's the message. As a matter of fact, Paul expressed this this way when he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, those are two Greek provinces, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, and they tell how you turned to God from idols. In other words, they turned away from idolatry and began to serve the true and the living God. Now, if you really study the Bible, what you're going to find out is people struggle with idolatry. And you go, well, what is idolatry, pastor? It's whenever we put something in a substitute for the true and the living God. And sometimes we put ourselves there. And sometimes we put other people there. And sometimes we put our hope in all kinds of other things. But when we're trusting in something other than God, that thing becomes an idol. 
And Israel was constantly in trouble because she was constantly embracing the values of the culture around her. They were constantly embracing the gods of the people in the land, and it got them into all kinds of trouble. So let's move on to the second appeal for the heart, and it's simply the instruction by Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom recognizes that if a person does not embrace her, they are in ignorance to the things of God which is actually the true beginning of wisdom when we get to know the true and the living God. And so in our text, there are those who are walking apart from God and people that are doing that are described as being simple. Yet we all start from the same place. Everyone in this room, you have to admit, maybe you were young, maybe you were older, but there was a time in your life you just did not know God. Isn't that true? We just didn't have an understanding. We were just ignorant of the things of God. We're not here to condemn people. We're just saying that's reality. And so we would be classified as a simple person. And there would be two women trying to seek our heart. They'd be contending for our heart. There'd be wisdom saying, come and listen to me and learn of me. I'll teach you who God is and I'll teach you of his ways. And then woman folly says, no, don't listen to her. Man, my life is so much more exciting. You know, you don't have to have all those, you know, boundaries in your life. You can just smash them all. But what people don't realize is when we're smashing those moral boundaries, what we're doing is causing us to live in a state of death. And we don't recognize that. So... Uh, <clears throat> When, our, when we reject lady wisdom, what happens to our hearts? We move from a state. Once we know, we move from being a simple person to a person who now moves and is, actually has to harden their heart. To refuse to hear wisdom, you have to harden your heart. And when you do that, you become another kind of person. And the, and the book of uh, Proverbs talks about it. You become a mocker. You say, well, what's a mocker? A mocker is probably the person that is the most hardened. They hear advice, and then they criticize and ridicule the person who gives them the advice. Isn't that interesting? So what I'm learning is that a person who is wise is a person who receives instruction and who receives correction. And how many know that you and I can't change and grow and develop unless we actually hear instruction, we receive instruction, and we receive correction? A wise person you know, evaluates things. But you know, a lot of people, you ever met people, don't tell me, I know everything, I don't wanna hear anything, I got it all figured out. But meanwhile, their life is just messed up. You know, they, you can't correct them, and they just are hard-hearted and hard-headed, and then they mock and criticize the person who's trying to help them. And we see that over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, Dr. Walkie uh, says this, suppose that it is his mission, he's talking about the mocker. The mocker supposes that it's his mission in life to promote the corrosion of the values by which individuals and society live. Now, I want to just stop there and reflect on that for a minute. So what is happening in our culture today is we have a whole bunch of people who are in a state of mockery towards God, and now we're promoting a lifestyle and a way of thinking that's in rebellion against God, that's promoting death rather than life. And in other words, to, to somehow overcome this Dr. Walkie points out, you almost have to drive these people from the community, even if by force. Because Proverbs says, drive out the mocker, and out goes strife, quarrels, and insults are ended. These people are contentious, he says, and you can expect contention from them. Now, what Lady Wisdom is saying to the simple, the naive, and the inexperienced person who doesn't really know her, back down to verse 6, leave your simple ways, and you will live and walk in the way of insight. So we're told that wisdom's path is a way of wisdom and insight. And she also warns us in verse seven, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs wrath. 
You know, it's really difficult to, you know, people who are bent against God, you will run up to them and they will actually terrorize you if you try to straighten them out. They will not, that's why Jesus said, they won't listen. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. They'll tear you apart. That's what he's talking about. Where's Jesus coming up with this stuff? From the wisdom literature. He's full of this stuff because he himself is wisdom. Now, verse eight, it says, do not rebuke a mocker or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. So we need to understand that Lady Wisdom is warning us that if we correct a mocker, we can expect relational pain. It'll just come our way. And I think here's the crux of the issue. How do we receive correction? Let's apply it to our lives now. How do I receive correction? Do I become defensive or abusive? Do you become defensive or abusive? Or do we consider what is being said and then act accordingly? And you know, sometimes, you know, people, you're, you know, if you're a leader, you get criticized. That's just normal. I try to sit down and go, okay, is there something in this criticism that I need to learn from? What can I glean from this experience? What, what can I understand? What, what do I need to do better? You know, and I think if we're going to grow and, and tr be transformed as people, we have to be open to instruction and correction. You know, I, I think that's exciting. <clears throat> I, I love preaching. I love not only preaching, but also being on the other side and hearing preaching because I love it when the Spirit of God is speaking into my heart and is correcting me, and I don't go, oh, I just hate that preacher for saying those things. No, I sit down and go, boy, I'm so thankful he's pointing this out to me so I can make that adjustment in my life and continue to grow in my relationship with God and to continue to walk in wisdom. So our response to correction tells us a lot about ourselves. That's what I'm getting at. So where does wisdom begin? Well, how do we acquire it? And where does it come from? And I love what verse 10 says. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole book. It says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So wisdom starts in our lives when we begin to say, you know what, I really respect what God has to say. I'm gonna bow down to what he has to say. And you know, the New Testament writers were deeply impacted by this wisdom literature from the Old Testament and understood that wisdom is not just a bunch of words, it's actually found in a person. It's embodied in a person. And that person is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul said this and explains to us that Jesus is our wisdom. And he says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. And then he says that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now when you read that, sometimes it just kind of goes right over our head. But let me just unpack this little verse because it's so powerful. Really what he's saying is that Christ is the essence of all wisdom. And when we come to know Jesus, we actually are embracing lady wisdom. It's the same thing. The Old Testament is described as lady wisdom. In the New Testament is described as Christ. When we come to Christ, we now enter into a state of righteousness, which means that we become right with God. You know, how many think that's amazing? That we actually now have a right relationship with God and we start to do the right things. That is powerful. Number two, it says here that Christ becomes our holiness. It's not something that you and I are doing to try to be holy. You see, I, I'm, I'm really concerned right now because so often, you know, we, we hear messages and it's almost like we're being taught morality. But morality is coming from the outside in. We're telling people this is how you should behave. This is how you should live. But what happens is it doesn't change anybody. You know, people start to know to do the right things, but they're still rebels inside of their hearts. Isn't that true? 
And I think that we don't understand the depths of the nature of human beings. You see, I believe that God created us in his image. That's beautiful. But what happened? Sin came into the world. And sin has actually marred the image of God into our lives so that you know, in, intrinsically, we're all dealing with a nature called sin inside of us. And that's why Jeremiah warns us in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is dis, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so a lot of us, you know, we think of ourselves as far better than we really are. I mean, that makes a shocking statement. But I always point out to people, given the right context, it's amazing how poorly we can behave. Anybody have discovered that? We really can behave very poorly. And I always raise the question, now, whatever happened to Germany, here was a nation that were Christians, and then one day, all of a sudden, destroyed six million people. How do you, how do you respond to all of that? Well, it's just a few people, Pastor. No, it wasn't. It was a nation that somehow was seduced, and evil was allowed to prevail. And there were people there who stood up. They were, they were killed, too, you know, because that culture was a culture of death. And we actually have a culture of death moving in our own lives. So what does it mean to be holy? See, we think holy means an absence of sin. Can I tell you what holiness really means? It means that I belong to God. You are a holy person because you belong to God and you've been separated for God's purposes. And that's why God calls the church people saints. And most of us look at each other and go, you're a saint, really? But that's reality, we are, because we belong to God now. We've given our lives to God, and now we belong to him. And that's what it means to be holy. And we're only holy because of what Jesus did, not because something we can do. And finally, we have to understand the nature of our redemption. You and I can only be restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ to the Father. You and I can't be restored on our own merit. No matter how many good things I do, I'll never be able to do enough good things. You know, because intrinsically, I've got, I've got a heart issue. And the heart has to be what changes. And so John tells us that when we embrace Jesus, something profound happens in our lives. And I love this verse in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? No, you may experience this, that you have eternal life. Now, and I think when we read that word eternal life, what do we think? Forever life. But that's not what that word is talking about because the moment you and I receive the Son, we have this kind of life. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. And so it's a beautiful quality of life. See, you know what God wants to give us? God wants to give us joy. How many think joy is a neat thing? How would you like to be full of joy? You know, and joy brings strength into our lives. But you know, when you and I are walking with God and we're trusting in God, it brings joy into our lives so that it helps us deal with all the things around us that are not always joyful. There's a lot of brokenness in the world, a lot of pain in our world, but you and I can have joy. You and I can have peace. How many think peace is an amazing thing? You know, not living with anxiety and worry and frustration and, and anger and upset. And you know, some people are, are living, they're pulling their hair out all the time. You know, they're just always wound for sound. Let me tell you something. When you and I know Jesus, we have peace with God, and we can have the peace of God, and we can walk around having a peace that passes all kinds of human understanding in the midst of all of the troubles that we're in, that you and I can have a peace that guards our hearts and minds and that we're not filled with anxiety. Isn't that beautiful? And I notice as I walk with God for over four decades, I've come to realize that God is who he says he is and does what he says he'll do. And that he brings us through many trials and difficulties. And I've noticed that even though we may be in a dark moment right now, can I just say a word of encouragement to you? You may think you're in a cave, but I want to tell you tonight, you're just in a tunnel. And it may be a long one, but there's light at the end of that tunnel. 
And you're going to find it in Christ. He's the one that's going to take you through that whole journey. And then we see the benefits and warnings that come from wisdom. Verse 11, for through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. How many know that a lot of people shorten their life prematurely? You know, when you and I violate moral boundaries, we get addicted to, you know, drug abuse. A lot of times people end up, you know, dying young. You know, so the way of folly shortens our life so often. We die prematurely. A lot of people do. But it says, through wisdom, your days will be many, your years will be added to your life. Now, that's a principle. There's there's exceptions to this. I'm not going to argue that point, but these are principles. He says, if you are wise, your wisdom will reward you, but if you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. Now, somebody might say, well, listen, mockers cause others to suffer as well. I said, yeah, that's true, but what he's, the point he's making here in the, in the passage is that when you and I are a mocker, we're going to suffer for it, and we're going we're to suffer because of our folly and our foolishness. But he says, if you're a wise person, you're going to be rewarded for that, ultimately. And Paul Coptic points out, taking the proverb as wisdom's last words, we see that she puts responsibility squarely on the shoulders of the listener, making it clear that one reaps what one sows. You know, I love this, because I'm a big proponent, and I believe it, and the scriptures teach it, that you and I need to take responsibility for our lives. But our culture today is trying to take responsibility away from our lives and blame everybody else. How many know that's true? And when you do that, what happens is that you still remain in your pain and you just live as a victim. But the moment you take responsibility and say, yeah, maybe I was victimized, but I have a power in the presence of God. I can forgive people. I can rise above the pain in my life, and I can start living as a victorious person. How exciting is that? And then he goes on to say, she tells each of her listeners to decide whether they will be a wise one or a mocker. So we have a choice. How do you want to live? You want to be wise? Do you want to walk in wisdom? Or do you want to hear the voice of woman folly? And once you hear the call of wisdom, she warns you are no longer simple or unlearned. You are either on your way to becoming wise or you're on your way to becoming a scoffer. When I look at people, I just say, look, this is where we all are. We're either moving towards God or we're moving away from God. It's real simple. And it all depends on our response. Wisdom's feast then in her instruction and her correction is a first course in the fear of Yahweh. Her call is not an invitation to some school of manners or moral self-improvement. Rather, it's an invitation to know the Holy One. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Let me move on to the final appeal. It's the introduction instruction by woman wisdom. And I, I, I see her as a foil. You know what a foil is? It's kind of a backdrop. She's kind of the fall person. You know, here's what you don't want to do. This is, this is the lesson. You don't want to go this way. And so we see woman, wis, uh, woman folly. She's contrasted to lady wisdom. Even the description of woman folly should warn us of her insincerity and duplicity. She cannot be trusted because she herself is deceived and therefore can only offer deception. Isn't that sad? You know? I think it's tragic. Look at verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She's simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. Notice she didn't hew out seven pillars. She's just sitting at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city. I've already pointed out that pagan uh, temples were also on high points. And she's calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. Those who have no sense or no heart, she says, She gives a proverb, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. What she's basically saying is, look, you know, you don't have to listen to all these moral guidelines and boundaries, you just go ahead and violate those things. You'll enjoy it. And how many know there is a pleasure in sin? But the problem is it's for a season. And then afterwards, you get the bite of it and the the consequence of it. 
But little do they know, it says, that the dead are there and her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So here we see the description and location of woman folly. She lacks wisdom. She's appealing to those who have no wisdom. It's interesting, she's also at the high place in the community. And as Dr. Longman points out, you know, she stands for all the pagan gods and goddesses who desire to lure Israel away from the true God. But it's also, in our day, all of the idols that you and I pursue after rather than pursuing God. It's the same thing. Those are all idols. We also have a, the voice of seduction trying to lure us away from Christ and the nature of wisdom. And I think there's a tremendous battle for the souls of humanity. The Apostle Paul, in writing to believers at Corinth, challenged them not to be fooled by the lies and the deception of the enemy and to be led away from Christ, which is our wisdom. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, he says, if someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus or another gospel, you easily believe it. But he says, don't do that. So he's warning against that. And as we walk throughout the pages of Scripture, we're constantly given this uh, challenge to choose. You know, you see it right there in the garden. You know, the serpent comes to the woman, and he's telling her, choose. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why don't you eat from this tree? And she has a choice. She can either remain eating from the tree of life, or she can eat from this tree. And guess what? She made the wrong choice. She chose the path of folly. She was seduced. She was deceived. And you know, you keep reading through the Bible. It's all the way through. Moses. Moses, you know, brings the, you know, he, God uses him. He leads the children of Israel. God does, but through Moses' hands, out of the nation of Egypt. All those great plagues, all the miracles in the wilderness. Moses goes up the mountain. You know what happens? In six weeks, these guys are down there fashioning a calf to worship this calf. Can you believe that? You know, and the calf is an, an image that they got from Egypt. You know, and then they said, well, this is the God that let you out of Egypt. Really? That's a distorted viewpoint of who God is. And a lot of times as Christians, we can even have a distorted viewpoint of who God is. Moses was so upset, God was upset with them. Isn't that true? And then Moses said, okay, guys, who are you going to choose? Are you going to come over here and be on, on Yahweh's side? And the Bible says all the Levites rallied to Moses, and a whole bunch of people didn't do that, and some of them died as a result of that. And then we have Joshua. Joshua goes into the promised land. Beautiful story. But look at the end of Joshua's life. What happens? This is what Joshua says. But if the serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, in other words, listening to the lady wisdom, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my house, we choose. We're going to serve the Lord. It's a choice you and I have to make. And then I think of Elijah. He's my favorite because I think he, he speaks to the issue of our own culture today and speaks to us as Christians. And you'll remember the story. Elijah comes along and there's been famine in the land the people have violated the, the covenant they had with God. Here they are worshiping these false gods. Oh yeah, but they're worshiping God too, but they're worshiping these idols. They're doing both. And what, what does Elijah say? Elijah goes before the people. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then the, the fire came down from heaven and then they said the Lord is God. The Lord is God. See, they had a, a, a real encounter with God. So what we see is every generation is confronted with this decision, and it's a fierce battle. And lady wisdom and woman folly are contending for your heart and my heart. And they don't just contend for it. It's not just a once-in-a-lifetime decision. It's not just like, yes, I choose to follow Jesus. 
Folks, you and I need to choose to follow Jesus every single day. You and I need to choose to follow Jesus moment by moment when we're tempted to think and do things that are wrong in our lives. And that's why I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. It says, my son, or you can say, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. You know what God is saying to us? I want you to give my life. I want you to give your life to me. I want you to give the essence of who you are to me. I want to bring about a transformation in your heart so that it's not we're doing moral things, but that out of the relationship we have, a heart relationship with God, God starts changing us from the inside out. And that's what brings about tremendous change in our lives. So let's stand tonight as we close the service because, you know, I've been teaching our young pastors on our staff, you know, you can, you can share all this information, but the question I want to raise tonight is what difference does this make? You know, you could walk away going, well, that was really interesting, you know, but what difference does it make? Folks, I think it's an important element that you and I make a choice. And I could say to you, choose tonight, who are you going to serve? How many go, man, I'm going to serve Lady Wisdom. Doesn't that make sense? But how about tomorrow morning, or Tuesday morning, or Tuesday afternoon, or Wednesday evening, or Friday night, or Saturday morning? What am I telling you? I'm telling you that you have to make a conscious decision. You need to say, you know what? I want to walk in God's ways. I want to know the true and the living God. I want, I want to experience the fear of God in my life, which is saying, you know what? I so respect God. You know, you know how come Joseph did not sin in the Old Testament? He said, how can I do this great sin against God? See, he had the fear of God in his heart. And I'm telling you right now, you are being bombarded moment by moment, daily, advertisement, movies, news. You're getting bombarded with secular humanism. You're being bombarded every day, you know what, that you don't really need God, that somehow we can live this life apart from God. And our culture literally believes that for the most part. That's a worldview, folks. And I'm telling you, it doesn't work. Because, you know, I've been a pastor so long. People that are living in that worldview, there comes a point in all of our lives when you can't do it anymore, when you're not smart enough, when you've lost something significant enough, when you're physically broken enough. I'm just going to go down the list. You're going to come to the end of, the, uh, end of yourself. And boy, it's a lot smarter to choose wisdom, to choose Christ. And so with every head bowed, I'm gonna just ask this question tonight to you. I think it's important we respond. The Bible's calling us for a response. Who are you gonna serve today? Are you gonna serve the Lord? Are you gonna serve Jesus? Are you gonna serve wisdom? Are you gonna walk in his ways? Or are you just gonna go, no, I'll just do my own thing? See, tonight, it's, I'm making it as clear as I can for you. How many here say, you know what, I want to choose wisdom? Raise your hand. I want to choose Jesus. Raise your hand. See, my hand is up. I want to walk in his ways. I want to do his will. I want to know him better and better. It's powerful. It's the best way to live. And so let us pray tonight that God would help us, not just this evening, but tomorrow and then the next day and the next day, that we're choosing to walk in the ways of God. Amen? So Father, I just thank you for these beautiful people that are here tonight. You know, just the fact that they're here suggests to me that there's something inside of them that desires to know you in some manner. And I pray tonight that these words that I have shared with them, they're not just my words, they're, 
an explanation of your words. I pray that we will choose life tonight. We will choose wisdom tonight. We will choose Christ tonight. We will choose to walk in your ways tonight. Lord, that we're gonna make a choice. We're gonna leave our simple ways. We're gonna leave our sinful ways, oh God. And we're gonna embrace your way and discover life and life to the fullest. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.